0: Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Instead of talking about Justin Bieber or Kanye West's latest series of Twitter rants, we're doing something a little different today. We have a very special guest in the studio. Dr. Joe Schwartz is here. His new book is called A Feast of Science, Intriguing Morsels from the Science of Everyday Life. It's his 16th book. He's an author, a professor at McGill University. He is the director of McGill's Office for Science and Society, which is dedicated to, and I love this, demystifying science for the public. Dr. Joe, welcome. Hi, Richard. You've been here uh, a couple of times, I think most recently a couple of years ago, for one of your other books, and you've written a lot of these. Um, Who are you writing these books for? Basically... um Anyone who's interested in science, which yeah. should be
1: everybody. That's your, that's your point, right? It's <laughs> science a, absolutely is my kind point. of the bedrock of everything that happens. It is. And uh, I think uh, people now kind of realize that that numerous times during the day, they come to the proverbial fork in the road, mm-hmm. uh, figuratively, of course, where you have to make decisions, and these decisions are, are based on science. You know, you wake up in the morning... You decide, is it going to be coffee, is it tea? If it's coffee, what kind of coffee? Uh, Espresso or or, or decaf? And decaf, what kind of decaf? Are you going to rely on the Swiss water process or (laughs) the dry cleaning process at lunchtime? I mean, you decide, what is it going to be? Is it going to be pizza or or vegetarian or smoked meat? I hear that you even have smoke weed in Toronto, although uh, it's uh, well, a yeah, question. I know. Yeah, right? yeah well, listen. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a debate for another day. <laughs> right. So, you know, you you decide these things, and at night, you you decide what you're going to make supper in. Is it going to be copper pots, or, mm-hmm. or aluminum, or stainless steel, or are you going to worry about Teflon? And then after supper, you decide, you know, what what are you going to do? Uh, uh, who you go to bed with? That's becoming a scientific decision, right? So So we live science, we breathe science. And I think uh, uh, it needs a certain degree of demystification Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of confusion out there these
0: days. Well, there's a lot – 16 books, that's a lot of debunking. So what are – and we're going to get into some of the the nitty-gritty of this. There's a few things that I really want to get to and we'll debunk a little bit Mm -hmm. later on. But why is it that there is so much debunking to do? Experts these days seem to be held in disregard where it used to be for my entire life – if someone was an expert in something, you went, well, that person is yeah. an expert. They know what they're talking about. I'm interested in what they have to say. We don't do that anymore. No, so very let's good start point. There.
1: Very good point. And uh, we live in an age where um, scientific experts are, are – no longer trusted the way they used mm. to be. It's it's kind of the, the death of expertise. Now, it's not that experts don't have the expertise. It's that there are so many people who think that everyone has expertise right. just because they write a blog or, you know, they, they're on some sort of podcast. And uh, we live in the information age, obviously, but we're inundated with information. There's a tsunami that floods us every day. And some of the nonsense sounds very, very seductive, mm-hmm. you know. And, and uh, I, I've made this point often to people is is that I, I can see why there is such belief in, in some of the nonsense out there because the purveyors are very good at what they do. They're very good at convincing people, you know, that, that
0: what they're saying is scientifically sound. I think that the anti-vaxxers movement, for instance, is something that really could only have – become as widespread as it has in the internet age. Because of the access to whatever information is out there, uh, you can make a... a Fresh-looking website, and all of a sudden, it, it looks like it's got some credibility. It used to be, you know, the newspaper, the Globe and Mail, is the standard because it's a it's a newspaper. Now you can have a website that looks fantastic and just be filled with nonsense, and people will buy in. Absolutely, and you know, it really is is amazing
1: that that uh, people like Jenny McCarthy and and Jim Carrey, and uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who have zero scientific background. Mm-hmm are looked upon as as you know uh, experts in the area of expertise, whereas people who have spent their lifetime looking mm-hmm. into science are are said to be shills for industry right. if they say anything positive about vaccination. Now, of all all of the stuff out there that needs to be quote debunked, mm-hmm. uh, I think the anti-vaxxers are you know at the top of the list because they affect society in in a very negative way. Uh, You know, vaccination uh, arguably is is the the most important scientific medical uh, intervention ever introduced. Mm -hmm. The only one I think comparable might be chlorination of water that has saved more lives in history. And to be against this is just insanity. Now, I'll, I'll say that even... If there was some smidgen of truth to what they say about the connection to autism, which, of course, there isn't, or about toxicity to aluminum or mercury vaccines, even if you give them that,
0: it is still total nonsense because (laughs) the benefits still totally outweigh the the risk. Well, here's the thing. To play devil's advocate for a second. So – I'm told, as a kid, when you had those thermometers with the mercury in it, if you break one of those, get away. Do not go anywhere near that because the mercury is toxic and will kill you. You'll grow a second head out of your back if you touch that stuff. Uh, And then you hear, well, there's mercury that they're injecting in my body. How can that be good? (laughs) Well, uh, there are many different
1: kinds of mercury compounds. Mm -hmm. What you have in the uh, uh, thermometer is pure elemental mercury. Uh, which actually is is probably the least toxic form of, of the element. Uh, if you would eat mercury as, you know, as the element, it mm-hmm. would come out the other end, unchanged. <laughs> believe it or not. Really uh, unchanged? Yes. Believe it or not, that used to be a remedy for constipation. They would give people mercury because, of course, it's very heavy, so it pushes <laughs> things right, right through. So there were, you know, uh, and that really was not risky. Now, mercury vapor is a different story. When that uh, metallic mercury evaporates, we inhale the vapor.
0: That can produce all kinds of of toxic reactions. Isn't that what the Mad Hatters— That's uh, right. So they used mercury to make hats in Victorian England and before. Absolutely. And the legend of the Mad Hatter came from them inhaling these these Yes.
1: Now, what they used was not elemental mercury. What they used was mercury nitrate. So, the different forms of, of an element can have very different degrees of co- toxicity. So, for example, the, the form that used to be used in vaccines, which, in fact, is not used, it hasn't been used for 20 years, mm-hmm. Okay, but but the anti-vaxxers still play this, uh, was a, a form called ethyl mercury. And that did not have the same kind of consequences as mercury metal or even a, a similar uh, compound called methyl mercury. Mm-hmm. So, the, the way that, that um, um, the... Atoms in a compound are are, are put together is, is very very important in in terms of determining toxicity. But anyway, the the mercury is, is a totally non-issue because it no longer is in the vaccines anyway. But even when it was, <laughs> the benefits so greatly outweigh the risk. I mean, you know, we we look at something like smallpox, which was eliminated from the world. Mm-hmm. No longer any case of, of smallpox since the 1970s because of vaccination. Polio. You know, when I was in elementary school, I still had kids in the yeah. class, classmates who had polio. When is the last time that anyone heard about polio now in, in, in the Western world? Whooping mm-hmm. cough, a rare disease. Measles was almost wiped out until the anti-vaxxers got into the game. And now more and more, oh, and, more and more, about these outbreaks. And, and you know that all of this was triggered by one paper mm-hmm. in The Lancet, which is a, a highly respected medical journal, and it turned out, of course, that the the paper was uh, let's just say questionable. if You want to <laughs> use the word fr- don't want to use fraudulent, but actually it was fraudulent by Andrew Wakefield, okay. a, a British gastroenterologist, uh, who uh, wrote a paper uh, basically uh, trying to milk insurance companies. That was the bottom line of that. And uh, the question is, how did this get into the scientific literature, mm-hmm. right? Because when an editor receives a paper and sends it out to referees to evaluate those referees of course cannot redo the work this is you know the work of many scientists over years so you have to assume that what was submitted was correct If someone is going to be fraudulent and submit stinky data, you're not going to find that out until someone tries to duplicate the work. And that's what happened with Wakefield. Eventually, no one was able to duplicate it. But by that time, we were seeing epidemics of
0: measles and whooping cough. I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Schwartz. He's from McGill University in Montreal. He's the author of 16 books, including A Feast of Science, Intriguing Morsels from the Science of Everyday Life. Uh, It's in bookstores everywhere right now. You can find it in online, too, Amazon.ca, all the places that you buy books. What do you think of the name Quackbuster, which is something uh, that he gets applied yeah, to you uh, quite it, often? Yeah, it does. It, it and how does. do you define um, quack? A quack is someone who pretends to have
1: knowledge that uh, they don't actually mm-hmm. have, and uh, that pretended knowledge is usually wrong. Yeah, in, in uh, the medical field. In the medical about, yeah. field. In the medical field. and. Um, uh, the term quackbuster uh, is sort of an interesting one. I I, I don't really mind it because uh, through my office we do go after these uh, these quacks, mm-hmm. but that is not our sole uh, you know engagement. I mean we we try to promote uh, good science as well and yeah. talk about all kinds of interesting things in science, but the quackbusting is 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 indeed one one area which is uh, becoming more and more important because
0: there is more and more misleading information uh, out there. We just have a minute left in this segment. I I, want to talk about Dr. Google. And I think that's probably the worst thing that's happened to medical science in a decade is uh, I have a rash on my arm. I've got a headache that is reoccurring on this side of my head. So, or whatever it might be, type those uh, symptoms into Google and all of a sudden I've got brain cancer or leprosy and I'm convinced of it.
1: Right, uh, you know, there's a very good cartoon that I think first appeared in the New Yorker, uh, where uh, it's at a family practitioner's office, and there's a big sign on the wall. that says, "Thank you for not mentioning Doctor Oz," <laughs> and you know, they could they could also replace by that Doctor Google, yep. uh, because uh, you know, I mean, these days people listen to to TV docs and they and, and they Google, so there is this fantastic amount of information without any filter, right, and. A lot of the information is very good. You know, if you have scientific background, boy, Google is a godsend. You know, I mean, I don't have any need to go to the library anymore because, you know, the library comes to you, you know. But it's a question of how how to use it. And uh, unfortunately, without a scientific background, you are at the mercy
0: of Dr. Google – And uh, Dr. Google is not always right. I bet you there's more hypochondriacs out there in the world right now than there ever have been in the history of the world probably combined. When we come back, uh, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Joe Schwartz. Uh, The book is called A Feast of Science, Intriguing Morsels from the Science of Everyday Life. Uh, And when we come back, I want to talk about the book, and I want to talk about who do we trust? We can't trust Google. Who can we trust? Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Kraus. Dr. Joe Schwartz is here. He's the author of A Feast of Science, Intriguing Morsels from the Science of Everyday Life. He's a professor at McGill University, the Harvard of the North as I like to call it. So we, we call Harvard the McGill of the South. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's also the director of McGill's Office for Science and Society, which is dedicated to demystifying science for the public, and we're going to hopefully do a little bit of that here today. Um, you cover a lot of topics in this book, the the range of topics is really incredible, from TV shows, ancient history, health fads, uh, the environment, food and drink, um, the way we consume uh, food, drink, and everything else. How do you decide which ones to include in a book like this?
1: Uh, I've been in the business of kind of talking about uh, science, particular chemistry, to the public for a very long yeah. time. And uh, I've been on the radio now on, in Montreal on, on CJD and and um, other radio stations too. But my show on CJD has now been on for thirty eight years. Wow! So it's it's the longest running radio show on chemistry in the history of the world. It's also the only. Yeah. In, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, look so it up what, on Google. Right. Yeah. What that allows me to do is to have my my uh, fingers on the pulse of the public. You know, I get questions on the radio. I do a lot of public lectures where I, I get questions. Um, I get email questions, so I know what people are interested mm-hmm. in. And um, there's no problem in choosing topics. Yeah. Uh, food, of course, is is uh, always interesting because it is something that we all have in common. We all eat. You mm-hmm. know, there's not many things that everyone has in common. Yeah, yeah, but, but every we, five we or all, six hours, right? Yeah. We we <laughs> we all eat, and uh, people, of course, do realize that. Uh, it is important to to think about what we eat because we are made of the food that we eat. Food is the only raw material that ever goes into our body. So therefore, there has to be some sort of link between our our diet and our Mm. health. So, uh, of course, it's uh, always interesting to choose such topics, especially in this era of so-called superfoods. You know, when... Every morning you wake up and you get some email or, you know, some press release about the newest miracle, whether it's pomegranate juice or or, or ginkgo biloba or... seeds or something, yeah, whatever it is. You know, there's there's always something uh, that's supposed to make us live forever. So that, of course, gives me a lot of uh, topics to discuss. And then there are the concerns that people have. I mean, every day there's some novel concern, Mm -hmm. you know, whether or or not it's E. coli in in lettuce, which is, of course, a very legitimate uh, concern. Or uh, the uh, status of genetic modification, uh, where people are concerned about health, and that in that case uh, it isn't justified. There's no health I- issue there, so uh, it isn't a problem to to find things to talk about. They you know they kind of come at me automatically, yeah. and uh, but what I try to do is to to make connections, to put it into historical perspectives. You know, give some background to the story and uh, evaluate the information.
0: It can be very confusing uh, for people. And I'm speaking with Dr. Joe Schwartz. His book is called A Feast of Science. It can be very confusing for people because one day you'll read that a glass of red wine every day helps keep heart attacks away. Then the next day you'll be like, any consumption of alcohol will lead to is cutting a, a 10 years off your life. It, there's so much information out there. Um, and this sort of harkens back, I guess, to... You know, the idea of of who you can trust. You have to trust somebody. And and I'm never entirely convinced I listen to my doctor because I trust him. But it's very confusing. It's a confusing world out there.
1: It is. And that's why my office was created, so that there is a trustworthy source. And um, we don't have any... Biases, you know, we don't have any reason to swing one way or another. You mean uh, you're
0: not paid off by big pharma? No, although of, <laughs> of course uh,
1: we're accused of that yeah. often. I mean, if you talk positively about genetic modification, it must be because you're a shill, you know, right. for the for big agro. If you say that you know such a medication may not be as dangerous <laughs> as others say, then you're a shill for big big
0: pharma. We're but, not. We're we're only shilling for the scientific method. Aren't carrots the – not maybe the original genetically modified food, but they were – carrots were originally purple and red and whatever color. And then they were made orange because they thought, well, it's easier if they're always the same color. People will want to buy them. So that's genetic modification, We've been
1: genetically modifying food for for eons just by cross-pollination, you know. But this is not what – We really mean today when we talk about genetic modification, we mean intervention in the laboratory. We we mean uh, modifying the DNA uh, of some species through biotechnology. But basically, we're doing the same thing that that we've been doing for thousands of years, except we're doing it very scientifically in a very very efficient way. Uh, The the real trouble with genetic modification, as far as the public is concerned. Is is a lack of understanding, which I can understand because it's not a simple
0: concept. It's not a simple concept, and it sounds like a science fiction concept. Absolutely. You know, something that is genetically modified, well, that's Frankenstein, or that's, you know, an alien or something. Because
1: people know something about genes. They know that they're important in terms of inheritance, and they know that DNA is kind of the, the, you know, the... uh, uh, the determinant of our eyes, colored, yeah, yeah. you know, and that it's the blueprint of life and they know this. But they don't already know the intricacies. And uh, when you don't understand something, you tend to fear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and we see this. We've seen it over the years. Anytime some new technology is introduced, it generates fear. This happened when pasteurization was introduced. There used to be demonstrations in the street against pasteurization (laughs) because it was destroying the nutritional quality of of milk. Well, no, it was destroying the dangerous bacteria. Uh, We saw this when when cell phones were introduced, when microwave ovens were introduced, when x-rays were first introduced. Uh, Food additives, any new technology is first feared. Uh, because there is the unknown about it. But the unknown usually comes from, from a lack of understanding. And this is the case with, with genetic modification. Uh, so much misunderstanding. First of all, I mean, people think that, that uh, uh, this uh, genetic modification is practiced much more than what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have people coming up to me sometimes in the supermarket, you know, brandishing a, a giant strawberry, yeah. saying, look, this is what genetic modification does and tastes horrible. Well, I agree. It tastes horrible, but it has nothing to do with genetic modification. Probably left out in the sun for too long or whatever <laughs> no, it's, it might it, be. It's, it's been traditionally crossbred to be very large. Mm-hmm. And the reason that that strawberry is very large is because it has a lot of water and that takes away the taste. But there is no genetic modification. Strawberries are not genetic modified. The only foods that are genetically modified in, in North America are, are soy, uh, canola, corn, and sugar beets. That's it. Not tomatoes, not apples, not pears, right. not, not bananas. These are, are are not. But there are all kinds of
0: myths that you know grow up about this. And we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. I'm in studio with Dr. Joe Schwartz, in from McGill University, to talk about his book, A Feast of Science. Stay with us. Welcome back everyone. I'm Richard Kraus In studio, Dr. Joe Schwartz is here. A feast of science. Intriguing morsels from the science of everyday life. Uh, is his book, Sugar Beets, one of only four genetically modified foods that are available to us. Uh, how are they genetically modified? I love beets. <laughs> okay. The, the beets that you're eating are not the sugar beets. Okay. The, the beets that you're eating, the, the purple
1: ones, yeah. the, the, those are not genetically modified. Yep. The ones that, that uh, are are genetically modified are, are processed to make sugar, the right. crystalline sugar. And uh, when we talk about genetic modification, what we really are are talking about are making a plant resistant to a herbicide or to enable it to produce a natural insecticide. So weeds, of course, are, are, are the main enemy of farmers because they suck nutrients from the soil. The idea with genetic modification is to implant a gene into a plant so that it can be exposed to herbicide and be unaffected right. whereas the weeds are killed. So of course it's to the benefit of the farmer and in the long run it's the benefit of the consumer because you get cheaper food. Mm-hmm. All right. Now there are of course people who are concerned about about this. They're concerned that 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 gene that is introduced may somehow be harmful or that the uh, glyphosate, the Roundup that is sprayed uh, mm-hmm. residues of that can be harmful. Well, there are many things to keep in mind here. First of all, any kind of spray, whether it's a pesticide or a herbicide, has to pass through rigorous uh, loopholes and hurdles with with Health Canada, with Pesticide Management Regulatory Agency. It's not a question that that these chemicals can be put on the market at the whim of a producer. There's a lot of research that, that goes into it. Can we say with absolute certainty that there will never be a problem? Of course not. I mean, you, 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 you can't say that you're going to get on an airplane and that you will land mm-hmm. with absolute certainty. It's always a question of weighing the risks against the uh, the benefits. Now, one of the reasons that, that people are, are so concerned about genetic modification is because they don't really see the benefits. They read about the risks, but they don't see the benefits right. because... What difference does it make to the average person in the street that that farmer may have a 10% higher canola yield? They don't even know what canola is. They don't know if you hunt it or fish (laughs) it or or, or grow it. If we had something tangible that that was clearly seen as a benefit to the public, I think we would have less of these arguments. If we really had a tomato that was genetically modified that you could buy in January that tasted like it was picked off the vine Mm -hmm. in August, They would be
0: less concerned. And if it was the size of a pumpkin (laughs) and could feed a family of 10. Uh, And I think that the fear of GMOs, uh, genetically modified uh, food of any sort, uh, has led to the rise of organics and in an odd way has made going to the grocery store more expensive. The idea was, I think, to help bring down increased yields, yes. help bring down right. the prices. And I think that the idea of going and saying, well, I want my, my, my food to be as pure as possible, so I'm going to have it stamped organic, even though an organic sticker on your food does not mean that there weren't pesticides used, that it wasn't uh, really made any not. differently than, than anything else. <laughs> but it's always not double the price, but substantially more expensive.
1: I think people are surprised to learn that there are pesticides used in organic mm-hmm. agriculture. And there's a large number of pesticides that are allowed to be used in organic agriculture. The only stipulation is that they must be available in a natural way without any kind of modification. So for example, copper sulfate, which you can mine, it exists as copper sulfate. You can use this in organic agriculture. Uh, of course, it still has to have passed through uh, the Pesticide Management Regulatory Agency in, in Canada, which does not stipulate uh, any difference between uh, conventional pesticides that are synthetically made or, or organic pesticides. All pesticides are regulated the same way. So if if past muster, you can use them. Now, in organic agriculture, uh, there are... You know several, you know, supposed benefits that 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 people think are benefits. That is, that it doesn't contain pesticides, which mm-hmm. is not true. Yeah, and, and that it is more nutritious than conventional food, which is also not true, because the nutritional qualities of the food do not depend on whether it was grown organically or conventionally. It depends on the kind of seed, the amount of sunshine. Now, you know, the amount of water that is soil available. <clears throat> One area where organic uh, does merit consideration is is, is in environmental concerns, mm-hmm. because uh, uh, indeed, uh, you know, using the more soluble synthetic fertilizers, you get more of it washed off into into rivers than when you're using conventional manure, mm-hmm. for example. Although with manure, you have to make sure the manure is properly prepared; otherwise, you can get bacterial contamination. Right. Many of the bacterial diseases that we've seen stemmed from organic farms. Uh, so, you know, or, organic is, is, is not the answer to, you know, uh, food problems the yeah. way that, that people think. Uh, uh, I'm not against organic. I mean, certainly uh, if someone can raise uh, crops organically without, you know, having to delve into uh, all of the synthetic pesticides, so be it. Uh, but it isn't always possible. And, you know, pretty soon we'll have uh, 10 billion people coming to dinner
0: and the world is not going to feed them organically. A Feast of Science, Dr. Joe Schwartz is in studio. I wanted to talk a little bit. You mentioned how uh, Health Canada and other government regulatory boards has to or have to give a stamp of approval to pesticides, to the things that we put in our body, that kind of thing. Um, And yet they give a number, a DIN HM number, uh, to homeopathic medicines uh, that would suggest that they're completely safe. If I looked at that and saw that there was this number, I would say, well, this is going to be helpful to me. And we don't know that,
1: right? Absolutely. And uh, you've just brought up an issue that immediately makes my blood pressure rise.
0: (laughs) Well, I I will get you some (laughs) turmeric for that then, sir.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And and I can tell you that no homeopathic remedy is going to bring that blood pressure down. Right. Uh, You know, uh, I deal with a lot of, uh, quote, alternative treatments. Uh, But the one that raises my ire the most uh, is homeopathy. Uh, Homeopathy is the most absurd of all of the alternative treatments, because the basic tenet is that non-existent molecules can cure existing diseases. Uh, It's a 200-year-old system of quote medicine, put it into quotes, that uh, was invented by a German doctor by the name of Samuel Hahnemann, who uh, actually was, uh, I think, a good guy because in those days, what was medicine? What did they do? <laughs> they perched patients, they yeah, bled they put patients. leeches on them, yeah. Right. He wanted to do something that was kinder and gentler. And there was one substance that actually worked in those days, which was an extract of the bark of the cinchona tree that grew in South America. It contained quinine. And uh, that they would give to malaria patients, right. and it worked. But he didn't know exactly how much to give, so he became his own guinea pig. He experimented <laughs> on himself. He tried taking larger and larger doses of this, and to see yeah. how much was safe. And eventually he got a fever. And this is exactly what he saw in his malaria patients. And at that moment homeopathy was born that like cures like. A substance that in a healthy person causes symptoms will cure those symptoms in a sick person. Makes no scientific sense. Mm -hmm. He knew also that to his patients, he was giving much less than what he was taking, and thus was born the second notion of homeopathy, that if you dilute something, it becomes therapeutic, more and more therapeutic. He didn't recognize that he was diluting his substances to the extent that there was absolutely nothing left in there because they didn't know anything on molecules in Mm -hmm. those days. And yet it still worked, obviously through the placebo effect, because non-existent molecules do not do anything. But this nonsense has persisted since that time, that these dilutions and banging the solution to a leather pillow 100 times between each dilution potentiates this. Yeah. I mean, this is really something that makes scientists bristle.
0: Do you get hate mail from people? Uh, a homeopathist I, it's very out there, their yes, blood I mean, must be boiling yes, right now.
1: Yes, I mean, certainly I've, uh, I've had debates with homeopaths <laughs> and that generates, you know, some, uh, uh, some stuff like that. But by and large, when you explain this to people, they say, oh, yeah, I didn't know this. Mm-hmm. Now, Health Canada is, is uh, I think, part of the problem here. Uh, the whole natural products division. Uh, Natural products are not regulated uh, in a stringent enough way. Uh, And uh, this certainly is the case for homeopathic remedies, which contain nothing. But they are given this drug identification number, DIN-HM, which is not the same as the DIN number that is given to prescription drugs, All right, which have to be tested and, of course, have to conform to all of the regulations. What Health Canada has said is that, look, these homeopathic remedies are safe enough, which, of course, is the case because they contain nothing.
0: Uh, so we'll, we'll let this go. We'll pick that up on the other side of the break. My guest in studio is Dr. Joe Schwartz. The book is called A Feast of Science. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Kraus In studio, Dr. Joe Schwartz is here talking about his book, A Feast of Science, Intriguing Morsels from the Science of Everyday Life. Uh, it's in bookstores right now, and it goes through a list, a litany of things. I would say it covers a lot of topics about how science interacts with your life. Every day, you may not think that your decision to have regular coffee, a latte or decaf is based on science, but it is, uh, everything that you do during the course of the day, probably the clothes you choose to wear because the one material Reacts better to your skin. I get a rash if I wear polyester. Well, that's science. All that stuff is science. And that's kind of what the book uh, has has uh, uh, essayed here. Um, exposing science be behind some of the things that can cause you problems. Last year, you came under attack when you wrote in the Montreal Gazette about a chemical in McDonald's chicken McNuggets. And people said that there's something in it that I can't pronounce. And you said, well, you know, that's also in Silly Putty, too, but it's not going to kill you. Right. And that caused a big problem for you, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: that was interesting, you know, the kind of, of uh, response that you, you, you get from people. Um, I mean, chicken nuggets, McNuggets, yeah. uh, they're not the healthiest food. Yeah. I mean, they're fatty and salty, etc. That's the reason to stay away from them. Yeah. But uh, what uh, I discussed there was the use of a, a particular kind of silicone, uh, <clears throat> which is added in very, very small amounts to the oil uh, in which the chicken is fried mm-hmm. in order to prevent foaming. And uh, the amount that is added is, is is trivial because you don't need very much to, right. to prevent this. Well, but people have heard of silicones and say, isn't that the stuff in silly putty? Right. And yes, it is. That's, <laughs> that's what silly putty is, is made of. <clears throat> But just because silly putty is made of that does not mean that, that uh, another version of a silicone cannot be used in, right. in, in food. And, again,
0: when it is it's used like in food— It's like the mercury thing that we uh, were that, talking about right. earlier. That's there's right. There's a spectrum <clears throat> of mercuries as there is with the silicon. Uh, uh, it, it's very
1: interesting that the way that people perceive these things, that that something that is used in one context— which is a non-food application, Mm -hmm. cannot be used in in food. Yeah, that's right. And this, of course, is, is just not true. It depends on how much you're using and what version of the substance that you're using and there's nothing wrong with using uh, a small amount of silicone to prevent the foam forming in in oil
0: nobody uh, wants hot oil foam <laughs> in no, a kitchen and, and
1: the fact is that you could probably eat Silly putty i don't <laughs> recommend it but you know it wouldn't do you uh, any harm It would come out the same way but and, you know this is this is the kind of of, of myth that many what we call mommy bloggers right. build their empires on. Uh, there's a lady, Vanny Harry, who has labeled herself the food babe, yep. who has a very, very large following. And she's very much into this: that if something is used in one context, it can't be used in something, you know, something else. And she has developed a large following uh, based upon this. And almost everything that she says is is scientifically unsound, uh, including, you know, her, her theory
0: that if you can't pronounce it, you shouldn't be eating it. Right. Wow. And see, those are the kind of things that are great little slogans. Politicians use them all the time. I'm right. going to cut the gravy yeah. train. I'm going to, you know, all that stuff. And they stick in people's heads, right? Whereas... Polyisoudimin yes. glutamate doesn't, you know. Well, you in know, a we way. don't.
1: Uh, we don't determine the uh, risk benefit ratio or the potential toxicity of a substance by the number of syllables in its name. <laughs> well, maybe we should <laughs> you know? do that, Doctor Jones. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, if I were to to uh, confront the food babe with uh, beta fructofuranosol alpha d <laughs> she would probably run in the other direction. Yeah not a bad idea. to, But uh, uh, this, of course, is just sugar. Right. It's the chemical name for sugar. Right. So you cannot, you know, vilify something just because it has a complex
0: name. Well, this is one of the things that you cover in the book, why chemical is not necessarily, the word chemical is not necessarily synonymous with toxic. Right. And, uh, you know, over the last few years, unfortunately, that
1: is the, the uh, uh, cape in which The word chemical has become enveloped. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's become synonymous with poison or or toxin. Uh, Chemicals are just the basic building blocks of all matter. They're just things. They don't make any decision. They don't have ethics or or morality. (laughs) I mean, people make the decisions. The same chemical can be used to mankind's detriment or benefit. And obviously, there are many, many examples of that. Uh, Morphine is an absolute godsend when it comes to cancer patients' pain. It's extracted from the poppy plant. But uh, morphine can also be converted to heroin, which yep. is one of the great scourges of society. So is, is morphine an angel or a devil? It's, it's neither, it, it depends on on how you use it. So the word chemical should not be vilified in, uh, in that sense. You know, it is always a uh, question of, uh, of context. And you know, there's some really some irksome things, and, and you know, there's a chemistry set that I actually have, I bought, uh, hard to buy chemis- chemistry yeah. sets these days. <laughs> It says on it, believe it or not, on the top of the box, it says no chemicals required. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because chemistry <laughs> yeah, set Yes, yes, I mean you're supposed <laughs> to go out And buy your vinegar and baking soda right. Which are the only perceived safe safe right. chemicals This
0: is absolute nonsense We're talking to Dr. Joe Schwartz The book is called A Feast of Science Intriguing Morsels from the Science of Everyday Life Let's do some quick hits here uh, in, <laughs> the, in the final five minutes of the show Are there fish genes in tomatoes? No, there aren't uh, But this people is, think there are People think they are The reason that they think they are is
1: because at one time there was talk of it. There's a fish called the Arctic flounder, uh, which uh, lives in the Arctic waters, obviously yep. freezing waters, but the fish does not freeze because it produces a protein that is called an anti-freeze protein, pre- keeps it from f- freezing. Uh, tomatoes uh, are at risk of frost. Uh, sometimes you'll hear in Florida, you get frost yeah, and it yeah. wipes out. Okay. So farmers, of course, would be very interested in, in preventing tomatoes from freezing. So there was a question of taking the gene from the Arctic flounder which produces this protein, inserting it into the DNA of a tomato to prevent it from freezing. Interesting idea, it was never done because it turned out to be not technically feasible. But even if it had been done, it would have been one single gene taken from the fishers, thirty or 40,000 yeah. genes, and inserted into the tomato. It does not make the tomato into a fish. The only <laughs> or thing taste that, fishy <laughs> or anything. The yeah. only thing that that does is produce the one specific protein that you want to keep it from freezing. But it was never done, and yet the story
0: is still out there. Can snail slime cream and bone broth really make your wrinkles disappear? uh in one sense, yes. Uh, the s- snail
1: slime, this is this, <laughs> this, this mucin that is secreted by snails that, that it, kind of... It's a they, fog trail, right? It, when you exactly. see that's what it's they leave trail. behind. Yeah. Now, it, it contains uh, hyaluronic acid. It contains glycolic acid. These are chemicals that are actually used in many face creams. Of course, you don't have to, to extract them from right. snails. There are other ways to do that, but it becomes much more commercially attractive if you, you, know, you have yeah, this yeah. aura. Uh, but it it can be used in a moisturizing cream and, and possibly have some benefit. The bone broth is a different story. Uh, bone broth has become very popular. Yeah. There are there, oh, whole restaurants in the oh, whole now restaurants. That just There's kept... a restaurant called Brodos. People stand in line around the block to <laughs> get this bone broth for which they pay ten dollars for for a cup. Yeah. You know, we used to call it soup, <laughs> and then then of course it was much cheaper. But now the marketing emphasizes that it contains collagen which it does. Collagen is a protein. This is what you extract from bones when you make soup. That's why your soup congeals when you put it in the, in, in, in the fridge. Right. Now, they will tell you that the body uh, needs collagen because our, it is the, the kind of the, the basic structure of, of bone on which calcium phosphate is deposited. Uh, it is the uh, stuff that holds our skin in place. All of this is true. But when you eat collagen, it's a protein. It gets digested. It doesn't go to your skin. Right. It doesn't go into It doesn't in, fill those wrinkles it, in your lips. It yeah. doesn't <laughs> fill, fill those wrinkles out. Now, if you have some collagen in a cream mm-hmm. and you apply it on the surface, collagen can kind of uh, fill in those uh, lines temporarily.
0: Yeah. But uh, it does not get incorporated into the structure of the skin. What are, these are all things that are, that are covered in A Feast of Science by my guest, Dr. Joe Schwartz. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, what's the problem with sugar? resistant starch, hops and beer, microbeads, and secret cancer cures. We've, t- we've touched on some of this. But...
1: Right. Well, obviously, each of those has an in-depth story associated mm-hmm. with Let's it. Let's choose one. Uh, yeah, though. sugar, well, sugar uh, because sugar, of course, is the sure. real nutritional villain these days, for some justifiable reasons. Uh, we consume way too much sugar, especially in the form of soft drinks. Uh, people don't realize that, you know, you, you drink a can of soft drinks, you're getting the equivalent of 8 to 10 teaspoons of yeah. sugar. And that is is linked to overweight, which is one of the biggest problems we have in North America. Overweight, in turn, is linked to heart disease, linked to diabetes, linked to cancer. And uh, sugar is one of the easiest uh, food components to restrict because it doesn't really give us anything. It's not necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not a vitamin. It's not a mineral. It's not a nutrient that we need. It's easy to cut down on sugar. Well, I say easy. Yeah. <laughs> it Taste-wise, it's not so easy because yeah, yeah. the thing tastes good. Uh, but here, we really can make an argument for restricting our intake of sugar. And especially in the form of soft drinks, uh, I, I think we need to do something about the, the uh, total amount of soft drinks that are consumed in, in North America. The cancer cures, also, that, that is a very important story because there are so many quacks out there applying their trade and capitalizing on people's desperation. And,
0: and, and we'll see. What is, it's all about hope. I had cancer five years ago. I'm coming up on five years cancer-free now. and. I was private about it. I didn't talk about it on the radio. I talked about it a little bit among friends. And then, you know, as word seeps around, all of a sudden I started getting letters from people saying, oh, you know, what? Uh, only eat yams, tape onions to the bottom of your feet, do all this stuff. And I mean, of course, I didn't do any of that. Right. But what, what it struck me is that they were doing something that I'm sure they thought was helpful in this case, maybe it's not always the case, but they were trying to give me hope. Yes, there, there are two kinds of, of people out there. There are those who actually believe
1: that that uh, you know consuming an alkaline diet yeah. is going to solve everything. These are self-delusional people who, who don't really know how to evaluate the scientific literature. Then there are the out-and-out charlatans who know exactly what they're doing, and they're just doing it to, to make money. Uh, cancer, of course, is a terrible, devastating disease. Uh, there are very good treatments for many Mm -hmm. kinds of cancer. I am a testament to that. Right. And uh, unfortunately, steering people away from conventional treatment by uh, saying that all conventional surgeons or doctors want to do is poison you, uh, irradiate you, mm-hmm. and and cut you open, and that this doesn't work, whereas you should be going towards natural remedies, such as coffee enemas. I don't yeah. know why that should ever <laughs> be labeled as natural. I don't think it's a natural activity. Did like this and ended up six feet underground. We, we have dealt with a, a lady in Montreal who calls herself Montreal Healthy Girl who was dispensing this kind of advice, has no scientific background. And uh, we've, we've got evidence that there are people who have had terrible consequences because they follow this ridiculous advice of trying to cure their cancer by drinking
0: juices mm-hmm. once an hour. We have to leave it there. The book is called A Feast of Science. Dr. Joe Schwartz, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, you can find the book everywhere. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Andre on the board.